Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. I asked you to open your Bibles to Acts 8. For some of you, if you're not sure where Acts is, uh, you you should notice underneath uh, one of the seats in front of you uh, a black Bible. We call them pew Bibles. Um, And go to the back part of the Bible to page 98, um, and you'll find where we are looking at today. It is our habit as a church. We are convinced, in fact, this whole sermon's going to be about this. We are convinced of the power of the Word of God and the necessity to preach and teach the Word of God. So we simply open the Bible each week, and not only do we pray about it, not only do you hear it read, and and not only do you say it in responsive reading, but you see every single Sunday, front and center, the necessity and the importance of the Word of God. And it is most uh, clearly seen in the preaching, where we just simply go verse by verse, book by book, through the Bible, and we try to unfold for you what's simply there. So with that in mind, I ask that you would uh, attend yourself to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, as we work out this passage. It says, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's quite the opening line for those of you here for the first day. Uh, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering the house after house and dragging up men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. May the Lord bless this time. This is the second part of a sermon I started a a few weeks ago, and then uh, various things caused us to take a short pause. So let me catch you up with where I left off when I was preaching on this passage the first time. We were last here, and I wanted to provoke you into considering how you view the Christian church and the Christian faith. How do we see that? How do we view it? Not merely what they are, Many of you have an opinion on that, of what you think the Christian faith or the church is, but what is the importance of these, and are they truly important? And so I asked you to go home and actually discuss this with your family, especially with your children, most definitely with the older ones, just to challenge them, whether or not you think you already know the answer, to simply ask them, what do they believe about these things, to probe them? And try to understand how they view the things. How do you view these things? And I hope that you did that. 
When we talk or think about the Christian faith or the church, we can find often that we are not talking about, uh, we often think that we're not talking about the gospel, but we are. And that would be wrong for you to understand it. Both the Christian faith and the church is gospel-saturated. Without the gospel, there is no Christian faith. Without the gospel, there is no church. Everything that these two things are and do is simply because of the gospel, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. In fact, the Christian faith is simply that body of doctrine or teaching that is taught and commanded in the Bible, and it all begins and ends with the gospel. And so I made the argument uh, when we last were in this passage that we often we view these uh, two entities, the Christian faith and the Christian church, in very wrong ways, and I sought to develop two of them. The first is that we tend to approach it as if it is a personal interest. You may recall me saying that. If not, let me remind you. It's why we now have people who market the church. This is why uh, there's this desire to create an ambiance and and all of that idea. We're going to market the church. We're going to market the Christian faith like we would a candy bar or a theme park. And this is seen in how you talk about these two points. In fact, I remember Matt Miller and I were down in Southern California undergoing some training on church planting. And one of the things that they did with us was took us to a Starbucks. And so we all went down to Starbucks and sat there and ordered some coffee and just talked. And then the guy began to say, now now notice the layout, notice the color scheme, notice the seating arrangements. Why do you think the seats are this way? Why do you think it's that way? And he began to just talk about the intentionality of the marketing genius of Starbucks and how you can find a Starbucks and they all will capture the same kind of experience for you and on and on and on. And what his point was, was we need to do the same in the church. And it was at that moment that me and Matt, we parted ways at least in our mind with the training. The idea was, if you're going to be successful in church planting, you're going to have to market it to the people you're trying to reach. And I, I, I cannot and I do not accept that, and I want you guys to think about that yourselves. Too often we approach the church and we approach the Christian faith as if we need to market it. And so you say it this way, come to our church because you'll find an awesome youth program or beautiful music, or it's a place where I just find myself so encouraged all the time. It brings a lot of peace to me. I feel whole for the first time in my life. These are the types of things often we will say when we're trying to tell our friends or a coworker or somebody we meet to come to church. I'm not saying that those are necessarily wrong, but that is not What's important? They're not what matters. We end up making them what matters. And then we find ourselves tempted to market the church and faith in those sorts of terms. But what happens if you don't have any youth? Then there's no interest for you in that church because you don't have youth. What's, what's in it for me? And we begin to appeal to the culture of consumerism rather than the actual deep need of the human, 
a human who is in rebellion to, uh, to his creator under the weight of sin cannot abandon or get himself out from the penalty of sin because he is a sinner by nature who desperately needs to be reconciled to his creator. That's the need. That's the need. And many times a solid church will bring you no peace if you're not a Christian. A good church, a sound church, a proper church, a proper exposition of the Christian faith will torment you. Because you're not at peace with God. You're in rebellion. And everything that happens in that, that service serves to press that home to you that this is not mine. This, I do not belong to this. This, I am outside of these things. And I think that this is a challenge that many of us feel, though, that we look at a person who's not a Christian, they want to share the gospel. You, you, you're like, I want to tell them the gospel, but you don't. And why? Because you're having a hard time figuring out, how can I make the gospel or the church appeal to them? They seem happy, and they are happy. They seem content. How do I show them and tell them about this? Or you do talk to them, but you do it by selling it, And you find that they don't come because to them they don't see that as a personal need. The second way that we mess this up is we we see the Christian faith and the church's points of information in the marketplace of ideas. This is very popular for those who are of the intellectual type. The Christian faith and the church are seen as one of many competing ideas in the world. Or in a similar way, we work hard at trying to make the faith, the Christian faith, and I mean by that the doctrine, the truth, what does the church believe? And we try to make the church itself something that people will welcome as another good idea, that we can now be welcome at the marketplace of ideas, we can be welcomed at the table and find our seat, and we can share our thoughts as well. And what makes us so insidious is that we find it easy then to strip away the things that are mildly embarrassing. And so what you'll find when you buy into that is that oftentimes you downplay things in the Bible that the Bible doesn't downplay. You downplay the creation in six days. You downplay Adam and Eve and whether there really is one or not, uh, uh, an Adam and an Eve. Was there a worldwide flood or not? Did Abraham or Moses ever actually exist? You would be shocked, many of you, of the number of men who are professors in seminaries who would say that these things are all optional. The miracles of the Exodus the virgin birth, the historicity of the Bible, and on and on. What happens is that once we step into, we're trying to appeal to the intellectual desires of an individual, we start to downplay these things that they sneer at. And we all will say it's for the gospel's sake, as if somehow the gospel's not attached to those things. And at some point, what happens is it stops being the Christian faith. From there, I I spent the rest of the time showing you how this worked itself out later on in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, where Paul, the apostle, is before these Jew, uh, I mean, Greek philosophers in Athens, 
And he didn't play that game. He didn't appeal to their needs. He didn't care about their needs, what they thought were their needs at least, nor did he care about their philosophy and belief systems. He went in there and he did one thing. He, he proclaimed that there is but one way of salvation and there is but one God and that God is commanding men and women everywhere to repent and turn to him. That's his, that was his message. No appeal, no soft sell, no any, anything else. He just simply says, look, this is either true or it's not true. There is nothing in between. And if it is true, then you need to talk like it's true. Well, today we're going to come back to this passage and we're going to continue to uh, down that vein. And I just want to actually look at the passage now and kind of let it, not kind of, actually let it say what it's saying and try to develop those two points. I want you to see in this passage that what you have is the advance of the gospel. The gospel has started the gospel, and let me explain that in a second, but the gospel has started and taken root in the hearts of the people. The church has been born. It's, we saw that in Acts chapter 2, and they began to gather all around the word of God and the apostles' teaching, and they began to have fellowship and break bread together and encourage one another. And, and as they did, they were growing. The church was growing. All of it was because of the gospel. What we have here is now that gospel going outward into the world, into the broader world, but it's going outward in a unique way. So what is this gospel that I've talked about? The gospel is very simply this. It means good news and is premised upon bad news. The bad news simply is this. For those of you who have never heard this, I, there, it really requires more time than what I have, but it's the idea that we are at odds with our creator, that there is but one God. He has made the heavens and the earth and all that it contains, and that includes you, and therefore you are eternally responsible to him. Bible also says that though we know there is a God because he has made himself known to us, not just through creation, though that screams forth, the presence of a creator, as we understand how it's put together and the glory and the majesty and the massive reality of it, but also that he has made it known by putting it in the hearts of every one of you to the point that the Bible actually calls you a fool when you say there is no God because you're denying your own heart. But this is what we do is the bad news is that we then suppress that truth through our own sin, our unrighteousness, but sin, through our rebellion. We want to go our own way. We don't want to give thanks to our creator. We don't want to honor him as God. And so we go our own way, and we begin to create gods in our own image. And, and these can be very ethereal and, and vague, or they can be very concrete in a very literal sense. You could actually create a little god out of concrete and Offer up your little tokens of praise. And so instead of giving honor to the God who made you, we instead give honor to everything else that was made. And we come under his judgment. And it's through this judgment that we face eternal punishment. And the reality is that we need somebody to deal with this. And we can't. We can't clean up our lives. We can't fix ourselves. We cannot make ourselves holy as God is holy. We cannot make ourselves perfect as God is perfect. 
And so we flail about trying to fix things and trying to straighten up our life. But what we don't understand is that the very essence of who we are is stained by sin. And so every time we offer something to God and say, see, I'm fixing this, I'm getting better here, aren't I, God, aren't I? And we try to please him and placate in whatever way we envision, all we offer him is a sinful mess. But it says that in the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that he might become our curse for us. And this is the glory of the good news, is that we, what we cannot do on our own in any way, shape, or form, God did for us through his son, that his son, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is the one who is our substitute. He took our place. He became the curse. He became the object of God's wrath. He became the object of God's judgment. He bore this as he died, willingly laid his life down for us. And on the third day, it says that he rose again. Why? Because he is God in human flesh and death cannot hold him. And the power of death is bound up in sin. But sin has been dealt with. Sin has been paid for through Christ. And so then he conquers the power of sin, which is death in his resurrection. And he bids that he, as our Lord, as our King, to come and follow him. Put our trust in him. Trust in him as our sin bearer, our Savior, our Lord, and now follow him. And it's an absolute statement. It's not, I can become one of your kings He says, I am your king. I will not be one of your lords. I will not be added to your collection of other ideas and thoughts. I must overcome and overwhelm all of those until I am supreme. And that is a Christian. And out of that then comes the church. As the individual people are come to faith, they gather instinctively together and want to be together that they might worship, grow encourage, strengthen, pray, sing, and learn. And what they learn is the Christian faith. What we have here in this passage is the reality of the advance of the gospel going outward from Jerusalem where it started, and it does it through persecution. And so the first thing I want you to note is that there's a hate for the gospel, and that is normal for this age that we live in. There's a hate for the gospel, And that's normal for this age that we live in. Now, this is obvious throughout church history and the very clear statements also in the Bible that if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. He promises you this. And yet we over and over again find ourselves shocked when it actually is seen. In our own book here in Acts, In chapter 2, we saw the birth of the church, and at that moment, it says that the people enjoyed the favor of the population around them. The early church was welcomed. They thought this was neat. They were happy to see them. Everyone enjoyed meeting a person who called themselves perhaps a Christian. They called themselves something else then, but they they were in favor. But by the time we get to chapters 3 and 4, so just a few weeks or months later, the apostles who are the leaders of the church, these men are already being brought before the religious powerhouses, the leaders of uh, Jerusalem, and they are being told, stop, stop with this teaching. Stop telling people about this Jesus. 
And we get the first little hint, but it's only with the leaders that there's going to be some problems. And then we come into chapter uh, 5, and the, uh, some of the apostles are again arrested. And this time, they're really in trouble, and they are threatened and it, with imprisonment. And finally, ultimately, they beat them all and order them, stop preaching. And they go out and continue to preach. So now we're only a few months in and we go from favor with the people to now we got the leadership starting to become pariahs. And then in chapter 7 and 8, where we're at, there was one man named Stephen who wasn't even an apostle, but he was a godly man and a good man. And he's preaching and he's doing good works. He's even doing works of miracles and stuff. So they, it's not like bad things are happening. And they become so enraged that they bring him up on trial. He will not back down. He calls them what they are, sinners who need to repent. He need to return and come by faith to Jesus alone. And they, they're challenged by that. They hate it. They're so angry that they grab him, drag him outside the city gates, pick up large rocks, and stone him to death. And that's where we pick up. So it goes from favor with the world to some guys lying there under rocks, bloody and dead. Think about America right now in that same idea. In relationship to the church, think about what is America's relationship to the Christian faith and the church. Where are you? Where do you see us on this line? Are we, uh, as, a, as the church, the gospel and, and believing the gospel as Christians, are we at the point where the world finds favor with us? Are they happy with us and, and finding us to be a joy to be around? Are we at the place where key leaders are being threatened? Or maybe are we where people are just beginning to show violence toward the church? Think about where we're at, because we're moving somewhere, and we're heading somewhere, and you already know my position on that whole thing. Well, in verse 1, it describes how Stephen's murder becomes this flashpoint for violence. Up to this point, everything has been restrained and behind walls. There might have been discussions in individual homes and in meetings among the leaders, but, but it's all restrained. But now... Stephen's dead, and it becomes this flashpoint. I think this is how it will happen here, even in America. The, the, the anger, the resentment, it's building in Jerusalem, and it just needed one extreme act to break the dam, and everything comes bursting out. Saul is in full agreement with the killing of this man. Saul is being introduced here. He's going to become Paul. He's going to become front and center in the rest of the book of Acts. And here we just see the beginnings of this man. He doesn't stand by and passively hold the coats of those who are killing Stephen. He is actively rejoicing and in full agreement with what's taking place. He is a man who sees justice being done the way justice ought to be done with seriousness. He believes, in, at least in his own mind, that Stephen is guilty. Stephen is guilty of blasphemy. Stephen, Stephen is a liar, and therefore he's worthy of being stoned to death. 
the stuff that Stefan is saying is dangerous. We need to silence this, kill it. If it means killing him, then do it. But others join in. So on that day, a great verse two, uh, or verse one still, on that day, a great persecution arose. This event was so stark, so public, that it ignited every bit of the smoldering passions of those who hated the message of the Christian and their gatherings for worship. Notice how Luke frames this. The persecution was not against, though, individual believers, but against the church. The great persecution arose against the church. Yes, individuals are being affected, of course, but it's actually seen as an attack on the church. The reason I point this out is, again, we tend in our nation to think about everything individually, that I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we can kind of worship our own way, and we see this happen all the time. Church is seen as optional. Church is something that we can do within our own soul. We can avoid it, on and on. But the reality of it is, is that the gathering of the believers is normal and proper and, in fact, even commanded. And so when the persecution arises, it's not against Christians. It's against the church, against this gathered body of people. Even though they're going into individual homes and dragging them out, they're not just persecuting you. They're persecuting what you believe and who you are and what you stand for, and that's Jesus Christ and his church. Notice then it starts with Saul and hearty agreement, and then many others join in to the point that is actually described as great. And then by verse 3, we see that that agreement that Saul had now becomes action, and so now Saul is leading the pack, and he is literally ravaging these households. It's a unique word, that word ravaging. It's only used once in the Bible right here, and it's of utter destruction. Of, of, it's used of willful staining to destroy it's something, some beauty. So it'd be you going up to uh, the Mona Lisa and you taking a knife to it and then just destroying it in every way, shape, or form. Not just throwing some milk on it or something, but you're looking to destroy it. This is what's going on, is that Saul wants the church gone. Later on in Acts 26, don't turn there, but in Acts 26, Paul is actually now, Paul, who is Saul, Paul is on trial, and he's recounting what happened all the way back here, and he says, that makes it clear that it's not just one day, it's not just a bad night where everyone has to hunker down and and just stay safe, get your AK-47 out, get whatever it is you got, lock and load, we're going to, we're going to, just hang in there. No, it became the norm that this persecution strikes against the church and it's an ongoing, systematic, long-term effort to destroy the church. And that's where things become real for all who profess the love of Christ and follow him. Because all of us want to follow Jesus, perhaps, when it's pleasant, when it's well seed. We all want to be in on that. But what about when persecution, or worse, a great persecution comes? Beloved, at that moment, the sifting will begin, and there will be no question about who you are. Not one of you. 
the day that that flashpoint, if it happens here in our nation, comes, you and I will all know where we stand. We all love to make much of our faith, but it's untested. (coughs) Well, the results of this persecution is seen in the last part of verse 1. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. These are the outlying areas. I'll develop that more the next sermon. The Christians start scattering outward into the surrounding areas where actually they had been commanded to go, and now they're being forced out there through persecution. But even that's not safe because Saul is literally chasing them into those areas, tracking them down to see them destroyed. Always in, in when I come to passages like this, there's people who will ask, well, is it right or wrong to flee? Should they have just stayed and suffered or should they have fled? Was it right or wrong, pastor? And so let me quickly just state this. One thing you see in here is no word of judgment or observation that somehow this was wrong to do. We also know that not every single Christian did flee because the apostles stayed behind, but we also know that that uh, just through the book of Acts, that Jerusalem was always the center of all of the church's activities up until about Acts 15. Until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was the center of the church's activities and it went outward. Many people still stayed, but many others had to flee. And so you have some that chose to stay and some not. And so my answer would be simply this, At some point, if you face that, you're going to have to decide for yourself, what is your conviction? Do I stay or do I not? If you think you should stay and you're able to stay, then do. If you're able to go and and flee, then my counsel would be flee. My only other word that I would say to you, though, is that make certain that when you flee that you see if you can help some of the others who need to flee or would like to flee but can't. That you're, it's not every man for himself, right? It's not that bunker mentality. It's we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to help where I can help. And if you decide to stay, great, stay. But think about then how will you posture yourself so that you can still be bringing the gospel to the people? One thing that point I want to point out though is that the apostles were those who refused to flee. Now, you may recall that the apostles are slowly being replaced by elders. As the apostles were persecuted, imprisoned, and killed, gradually, as the church began to grow, they began to establish elders in every church, and they began to replace the apostles. So by Acts 15, you don't have just the apostles sitting over the church. Now it says the apostles and elders. And so what's happening is that this whole world of the apostleship is fading away as they go away, and it's being replaced by these men who are elders. And so in other words, the apostles were essentially pastors. They were essentially the elders of the church at the very beginning. They are the first shepherds, and the the task of any shepherd of any church is first and foremost to always guard and feed the sheep of Jesus Christ. So why would they not leave? Why did they not flee? They They were the center. I mean, everyone knew who they were. Why would they not go into hiding? Because they're the shepherd. That's their job. 
The mark of a true shepherd is always the one who stays for the well-being of the sheep. The shepherd never is thinking about himself. The true shepherd of God is always thinking about what is best for his flock. He lays his life down for it because he follows the way of his shepherd, Jesus, his Lord, who laid down his life for all of us, right? And so one of the things that you just see here is just that love that the apostles have, that they refuse to abandon anyone who's staying behind. The, the people of Jerusalem still needed the gospel. The church that was staying behind still needed somebody to shepherd them. And so they stayed so that they might minister. In verse 4, then, we see that whether people stayed or fled, though, it's not really important. And I want you to get that. It's not really important whether they stayed or they fled. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. What they all went with was the word of God on their lips, actively on their lips. Satan and his people hate the truth, but they can't silence the truth. They can silence your lips physically. They can harm your body. They can even kill you but they cannot enter into your soul and rob you of the truth. This is why I'm pushing you as hard as I am, is do you believe it's true? Or is this just something that you do to get along? Is this because of your wife or your husband? Is it because your mom and dad or whatever? Why do you show up here on, this, uh, on a Sunday? Do you believe it's true? And if it's true, then everything else falls apart because it will. the Christian faith tolerates nothing else. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, but I buy into certain aspects of Buddhism or Zen or, or Zoroasterism or this New Age idea or a little bit of Mormonism or whatever. You can't. It, 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 it does not tolerate it. There is but one way of salvation, one God, one baptism, one holy faith. It's it. These people were convinced of it. It's interesting, as you read church history, the persecution that Rome did to the early church, one of the things that they delighted in doing is just throwing them off cliffs. Why not? And they would line up many of the Christians and they would just begin to cast them over a cliff to their death. But they were given the chance to recant. They were, they, all they had to do was add that Caesar was Lord. That's all they had to say. Say that Caesar is Lord and you will live. And these Christians were Christians. They, they could not. Who was Lord? It's Jesus. Do you believe that though? Do you, beloved? Come on. If you were drugged to the edge of the cliff and he says, say Caesar is Lord and you'll live, which way, way would you go? It's cheap and easy in a, a comfortable chair, but this is the reality. And they would not. They would say, Jesus is Lord, and over they would go. And there's a story of one Roman soldier who, as he's throwing them over the cliff, one by one, he's watching these people, and they won't recant for the stupidest of reasons in his mind, I suspect, but at some point, as each one came, they brought with them the word of the gospel and they were preaching to him and he believed and he took his place in the line. He refused to recant and he was cast over himself. 
History records this moment. You see, they did not see their faith or the church or the Christian faith or or any of that as options among many. They weren't there getting their felt needs met in any way, shape, or form through some clever marketing. I remember one major church that's now fallen into disrepute that they had actually a pastor of ambiance, a major church down in the suburbs of Chicago, and he was, they had a pastor of ambiance, and his job or her job, I don't know what it was, was the lighting and the mood music and the temperature and everything. It was all designed to create an environment that would make the person comfortable, welcome, and happy. That's not what these people were. They weren't getting their felt needs met. They were true believers who grasped that this whole thing was true. In a world full of lies, they had the truth, and that changed everything. The whole of the Christian faith is not something that we just vaguely hold on to. It's built upon truth, facts, historical facts that actually happened. You can look them up. You can read about them. And it says certain things about this person named Jesus the Christ. It talks about who he is, what he did, what he did and claimed to do on the cross, what happened after he died, that he rose again. None of those are actually historically disputed, even though we spend all our life hearing people say, well, I dispute them. They're not opinions. They're not options. And so when you're talking to a person, you can say all you want about how you're trying to approach the gospel, but ultimately, here's the reality. They're going to say, well, I'm really concerned about the elections and what seems to be maybe some issues of fraud, or I don't like about the response to COVID, or, or I think that you and how you've responded to COVID is a little wacky, whatever it might be. And they're going to bring out their things. They're concerned about their 401k right now. They're concerned about illegal immigration. You name it. It doesn't matter. And you can fall into that and start talking and ranting about all those things. Or you can say, you know, all of that, I understand. I appreciate your concerns, but there's something that happened a long time ago that's even more important. I want to talk to you about that. Can we talk? And you go there. That's the only thing that ultimately matters. And you say, yeah, well, that won't get me too far. Then it doesn't get you very far but I promise you doing the other stuff won't get you anywhere. It'll just make you feel like you're getting somewhere. But not only did they bring their beliefs with them, but the church went out. So as the church is going out, they're bringing with them the word of God and they're continuing to meet and to gather and to worship and to proclaim This is the very essence of what we mean here at Missio Dei, which is simply Latin for the mission of God. What is God's mission? And we talk about it being missional. People put all kinds of meaning in it, but being missional simply means that wherever you go, you go with the gospel. You can't avoid it because it so identifies you. We don't merely believe it. We preach it. We go out with it in our mouth. So when they went out, they didn't just keep the gospel, they preached it. It was a present participle, meaning it was their habit of speaking the gospel. Is it your habit? We see here then that the gospel always advances both in good and evil times. 
Paul, in his final letter before his martyrdom, the same Paul who's here, Saul, trying to kill the Christians, now Paul, sitting in a prison underground in Rome, waiting to die, writes a letter to his beloved Timothy. We call it Second Timothy. And he gives a command to him. Such a simple command. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 2, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. If you were to die, and on your dying deathbed, you're, you have those around you, and you love them, and you, and you desire their well-being, but they, let's say they're all believers. You, they all make the profession of faith. What would you say? What would you declare? Paul would look at all of you and say, preach the word. That's it. What else, Paul? What else? Anything? Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. It's, it's so simple. It has no, the, the passage has no skill that you need to understand. You have to go and learn Greek or anything else. You can just look at, preach the word, and you get the essence of what Paul wants Timothy to remember. And yet, think about it, beloved, because every day today, now in America, in what's called the church, we find people doing everything under the sun but preaching the word. We're going to have talks, and the pulpit goes away. I, you, you know, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but the pulpit goes away, and you get a little stand and a little little thing of water, and make certain that your logo's facing it because you, you know we, it's all about that marketing. And you're you got a guy who has no business wearing skinny jeans, wearing skinny jeans, and he's being really cool. And they got their PowerPoint working, and they're talking. I I didn't know I didn't know Christians use Instagram, uh, pastors and churches use Instagram. I had no idea, and I accidentally stumbled on it. I think it was yesterday or day before. And I'm horrified. It's horrible. Not because it's wrong to do that, but, but what they're saying has nothing to do with the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And it has all to do with getting you, gen, you know, happy and excited and really feeling something. And I'm listening to these men and, and sometimes women, and I'm clicking on their link, and I'm like, all right, let's see where this goes. And I go to their website, and then I just get more sickened. Preach the word. Just preach the word. That's all. These were young Christians. These were all people who had not been saved more than just a few months They're running for their lives, and the one thing that they're convinced of is, I need to preach the word. This is not even the formal pastoral office. This is just evangelizing. This is just your job, male or female, young or old. If you claim Christ, it's preach the word. And as a result of that, we can then test ourselves against this passage and say, do you, do I, believe this? Are we convinced that the word is so true that the gospel is so non-negotiable that we must, we're compelled to preach it, or do we remain silent? 
The reason Paul gave that simple, single-minded command in 2 Timothy is that the Word of God is the only thing that can change a heart through the Spirit of God. It's the only thing that can take your heart that's trapped in whatever it is in and change it. Sometimes it happens radically, and other times it happens in this very slow process, but all of a sudden you realize this is true and I believe it. I've watched it happen both ways, and it's a wonderful thing to watch. I'll take either way. Some of you have been coming here for months, and you're listening. I'm asking you, what do you believe? Why would you listen to me and Grayson yak for an hour each week if you think this is stupid? What do you believe? Is this true or not? The Word of God not only has the power to change your life, but actually has the power to change the activity and life of a whole city or nation. This is the idea of a revival. A revival is not something you and I can bring about. It certainly has nothing to do with Second Chronicles 7 that people love to quote, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I will. No, it's got nothing to do with what genuine revival is. It's an act of God. But here's the interesting thing. If you study the history of revival, and it's happened in America a few times, just a few, that always it is when the preaching of the word is being done, where the word is being preached and preached unapologetically, at times God is pleased to so change that massive numbers of people become Christians almost overnight. And the entire direction of our nation is changed. It always works in cooperation with his word. Now, it's always easy to preach the word in good times, but Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, and then he defines when, and he breaks it down into two times. Very simple. He says, in season or out of season. It's so funny, because we'll, we'll create more complex categories, but he says, look, in the good times or in the bad times, in the times where the, the world is very dead and angry and opposed to the time when they seem to be very kind and gentle and open, it doesn't matter, preach the word. But in the bad times, the foolishness of the gospel, the weakness and the shame that the gospel seems to have with it becomes magnified. When the wicked are on the march and evil and perversion of mind and body of every type seems to be rising, what can we do? What, what must we do? What, what are we saying on our Instagram accounts and our Facebook posts? What are you doing in your private conversations? What must happen in a nation when perversion of every sort is on the rise, where violence and a lack of good and the lack of true justice is being accomplished, what must we do? What would Paul say? Preach the word. I, I, I understand, but what else? Well, when it's convenient and inconvenient. Okay, but I got that. We, we understand. So preach the word, but then what else? Preach the word. Just preach the word. Preach the word. 
The out of the season moments are what reveal much to those who watch us. You may not hear it, but Grace and I read it and hear it all the time of how we need new methods to reach the Gen X and the Gen Z. We read breathless articles about why the youth are leaving the church. And so what we do is we replace sound preaching of the word with a cornucopia of other options that are nothing more than a psychological drivel that comes from broken wells that will never satisfy. We follow foolish men and women on Instagram for tips on parenting, marriage, healthy thinking. And yet none of them can deliver because they will not bring you the word. Though the word is abandoned too quickly by too many, the word of God nonetheless still will move forward. One of the great lessons of church history is how God always had his people who loved and believed the gospel and the power that is built into the message of the gospel. Name the people who are in verse 4, and you can't. Who are they? They're just people. Unnamed people bringing the word. They're you, they're me, the nameless ones. Read in any century, and there will always be those who take seriously what Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, which is why I'm asking you, what do you believe? It is the power of God unto salvation. You might be saved, All you must do is believe the gospel. The book of Hebrews makes this point as well. He says the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know who you are? Read the Bible. Open the Bible up and just lay yourself before it. It will tear you to shreds. And then you'll hear the hope of the gospel that Christ, there you are laid bare with all of your sin and your inability and your failings and your depressions and your fears and everything else that comes with this fallen world. And there you see Christ who bids you poor and needy, heavy laden, discouraged and lost, dead. You are the wounded that need to be bound up. You are the lost sheep that needs to be found. And he bids you come and follow him. He becomes your shepherd. He becomes your sin bearer. He becomes your life. He becomes everything. And then the Bible stops being this thing that slays you and it it begins to heal you as you then come under his lordship and you conform yourself and renew your mind in the word and you begin to change and you're not the same person you were 10 years ago and things are happening. Why? Because God is at work in your soul. But it all began when you saw yourself as dead and wretched and Christ as your life. The word of God preached by the people of God is the only answer to our core problems. But here's what causes me personally, just my own private statement to you, so much ache is how too often you see it only afterwards when your life is now filled with the consequences. You've made your choices. And you heard this 
as a young man or young woman, and you, you said, I don't agree, I'm not sure, I want to try these person. This, this stuff seems to really make sense. I think there's some practical things we can draw from this teacher or that person who's not a Christian. And we don't understand that your marriage, your parenting, your life is a one-shot deal. Some of you young men and women, you need to grasp that, that your youth is only your youth, and it goes away far quicker than you ever think. You young parents holding that little baby that you're like, we're going to do better. Then you better be a man or woman of the word and only the word, or you'll be filled with the groans of the old people that are groaning. If only I had, I, I realized it, it, it is a hard reality of our life that we, we, we spend our life talking that we're convinced that the word is a word and it is supreme, but our lives speak otherwise. The number of times people thought that the idea of being convicted by a sermon is the same thing as repenting is beyond our number to count. How often do you post a, a link to a sermon and you're like, this is fire? Because it, it got you. It, it made you really feel convicted. And yet nothing changed. Our loyalty and love is always revealed in the middle of a battle. Never will it be revealed in peacetime. You show me the man or woman in the times of great difficulty, and I will then show you who and what they are, and more importantly, in whom they trust. So notice back in Acts, in verses 3 and 4, how the early church functions in this passage. The church isn't popular in verses 3 and 4. He's, he, he's ravaging the church. They're no longer protected because of its popularity. The death of Stephen is at the hands of the religious leaders. The people now step back from the church. Nobody wants to be associated with the Christians. Some of them might say that they personally have no problems with the church, but they're not going to stand with you and defend you. And so men like Saul, full of rage and hate, are given a free hand to ravage it. It's a dark time, but it's in verse 4 that the whole thing comes together. They take that one non-negotiable that each of them kept close by, the thing that was most precious to them, the Word of God, and they fled with it, but they didn't hide it. They preached it, and though this time is evil, God means it for good. The gospel advances. Through tears and tremors, the lips of the true Christian kept preaching the message. And as they did, the, the, the preaching of the word took hold in other people's lives, and they believed. Why? Well, because the gospel is most precious to these people, because it is the most precious thing. We're out of time, but... We could, we could consider the parables that Jesus talks about of the great treasure hidden in the field, right? He talks about a man who finds his hidden treasure in a field. It's so immense and so valuable and so worthwhile that it says that he went and he sold all that he possessed that he might buy 
the field. And the field is the gospel. It's Christ. I always illustrate it this way. Would you, would you sell everything for Christ? Is he worth that? And I mean everything. Think about it. When it says sold all that he had, it means you're, you're selling on Facebook Marketplace a used jar of peanut butter. Two cents, just two cents. But you've got to get rid of it all. You've got to take it all and get rid of it to gain Christ. That's the cost. And yet he doesn't count it as a cost. He doesn't count it a cost to lose everything because he knows what he gains in Christ, in this treasure. The pearl of great price is the same concept in the, that parable that's worth selling everything to gain Christ. That's why they went with it. Persecution then arose because of the gospel of Christ, and it will do it again in your life. Embrace that, accept that now, because in one way or another, you will have to suffer, suffer for it to some degree. There's no way around it without denying Christ. But it cannot silence the gospel. The challenge each of us have is that if we are silent in the good times and the peaceful times, why would you think that we will then be magically faithful in the bad times? Do you see the Christian faith and the church's options among many or the only thing that's true? Do you see the Christian faith and the church as existing to meet your needs? Or do you see them as life? To you who are sitting here knowing that the end of the sermon is near, Understand that there's nothing out there more true or that will bring you life. Now, you can go out and try, but I will tell you that nothing is out there that will bring you life, and nothing out there that will satisfy your soul because you were made by the Creator who bids you to come through His Son to be His. You may think you know better, And that you'll figure out the way to make it all turn out okay, but you're all running toward the grave, and you can't escape it. The problem with truth is that nothing can make it stop being truth. You can hate it, scream at it, run from it, deride it all you want, but it still ends up being truth. And Jesus said it as simple as, Simply as it can be said, I, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will see the Father except through me. So to you who stand away from Christ, to you raised to believe the gospel, but you find it a point of boredom, I ask you a simple question. What do you believe then right now and possess it so worthy that you're willing to die for that? What is it? What's so precious to you that you're willing to die for that thing? What pleasure or possession is so beautiful, so comforting, so life-changing that you can't go anywhere without it? 
What is it that you seem to know or possess that will never fail you to bring you hope and joy in even the darkest of times? And then to you who claim Christ, let me just simply ask you this. Is the gospel truly the pearl of great price? Is it truly that treasure hidden in the field? Is it what you hope in? like these people, so that wherever you go, you go with the word. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you open up our hearts to these things that we might see, find ourselves compelled for those who have been running and fleeing for so long that you will finally just let them see the state of exhaustion that they're in, that they might fall before you and come in faith to believe. For all here who are fighting that that war of timidity, which is so prevalent in our hearts, that fear of being hated, that you would put within us a sense of boldness and the conviction of what is true, that we would, with much love and care and compassion for those around us, that we might speak the word of truth, preaching, that in all of this as a church that we would gather each Sunday only to be more convinced each week of the truth of the word and the necessity to believe it and to say it. Bless these people. Care for their souls as I know only you can. I ask in your son's name. Amen.